we continue tonight, we're going to finish Acts chapter 5. So if you turn to chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 17. And I want you to see something as we begin here to, to look at chapter 5 in a, in a unique way. The church as we know it is founded, it's grounded, it's moving, God's doing all kinds of amazing things through the first century church. And now we find that that church which is an active church, that church which is being used, that body of believers that has an impact in this world is going to be an attacked church. And when you look at our world today, it's interesting to me that the churches that kind of have abandoned to some degree the authority of God's Word, the centrality of Christ Jesus as the only way of salvation, that faith is the only way to procure that, the the central tenets of the doctrines of the Christian faith, the churches that have abandoned that for a more seeker-friendly gospel, a gospel that's kind of all-inclusive, that says really there's no issue with sin, it's just what you make it in your mind. The church that no longer clings to the word, that church really isn't being attacked at all. In fact, it's a very popular church. It's a church that's full. Many of them are gigantic. Uh, Here people would say this is a gigantic church, and rightly it is. But there are very few churches anymore that stick to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power and the authority of God's Word. They've chosen to go a different direction, to travel that road that is heavily traveled and has been traveled by religion throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 17 here in Acts 5, And as you're going to see, that high calling that we have on our lives to be bearers of the truth is going to put you in harm's way at times. You're going to get attacked, and you have to be ready for it. And so let's ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father, we again are just grateful to even have a place to come and meet. And Lord, that it would be on top of that comfortable and have the wonderful things that we have, the sound system and instruments to praise you with and lighting and all of these things lord the first century church had none of it and yet they thrived they were attacked constantly and yet they thrived and lord we believe the secret to that was they kept on message they believed that you jesus were the only way and truth and life they believed that there was no other way to come to that right place with you father god Uh, except to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they taught that message even when their lives were on the line. May we have that kind of boldness. Would we also be able to figure out new ways to convey that old truth? Lord, that truth that's been true since the first moment that you, Jesus, died on Calvary's cross, would we find new and innovative ways uh, to make that truth known to men? Would we never get stagnant? Would we not get stale? Lord, would we always be fresh? Would we be a, a new wineskin in which you can pour new wine to the next generation? And so God bless us as we study your word. Thank you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 17, and now you can kind of see this picture, this high calling that's on us. 
It's going to cause conflict with the world, and it is going to cause, at times, even conflict with the church. And then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, uh, which at that time, there were two governing bodies within the Jewish faith. On one hand, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees, we can look at it very simply as the legalists. They were the ones who clung to the most strict application of the law. They were generally very rigid in their framework. And then you had this group, which was now governing the sect of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the libertine group. They were the ones who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. They did not believe in the ministry of angels. They were pretty much those that we would say are kind of like the people that don't believe uh, that God could have created the universe. They, they were kind of on the libertine side. And, and so they would rather believe in UFOs than they would in a resurrected Jesus. And so we find the Sadducees in power now. And they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them into common prison. Now, to help you understand at that day and time what the common prison was, that would be like the county jail to us. This was not a a high-security facility. It was a low-security facility. It was normally where rabble-rousers were kept. Uh, It would would be a place where you would keep the low-level criminals, so make sure that you have this. It was not uh, a horribly secure facility, most likely, but they put them in the common prison. You could have all kinds of insurrectionists in there, people who just got in trouble with the local leadership. And so you have the apostles now being put into this common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. And of course, if you have an angel speaking, what life could that angel be speaking of but eternal life, kingdom life, life in Christ Jesus? The very specific life that that angel would be concerned with, if it's an angel of the Lord, amen? If it was an angel of of light, it could have been the enemy, but it was an angel of the Lord. This may have even been uh, an appearance of Jesus after his resurrection Uh, briefly. Sometimes the angel of the Lord was a Christophany or an appearance of the Lord Jesus himself. But in this case, I believe it was simply an angel. And so an angel appears and begins to speak and, and says, look, speak to the people. And when they heard it, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Now bear in mind, this is what they've been arrested for. That's why they're in prison. They refuse to Stop preaching the name of Jesus. And it is very clear as we move on in this passage why they're in there. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together. And so now it's not bad enough that the religious ruler himself, the high priest, is really upset. But the entire council, uh, likely of the Sanhedrin. And so this would be the religious lawyers, if you will, gathered together. They settled the matters of the Jewish law and Jewish faith, and they would really treat it very much like a trial. 
And so someone would be brought before them. The charges would be presented. Those charges would then be countered by the defendant. You were actually allowed to have uh, a defending counsel with you to come along with you and say, well, look, this is what happened and here's the facts. It was treated very much like a court of law, except it was only about religious matters. And so this would have been something that the Jewish people would have been extremely familiar with. And so they gather together the council with all the elders of the children of Israel. So this is a big deal. This is like, you know, if someone had blasphemed the Lord or someone had gone into the temple and defiled the temple, maybe they entered into the temple compound and let's say for a moment you were a, you were a woman and you left the court of women and went into the court of the Gentiles and you tried to sneak into the main court, uh, that would be a blasphemous thing to do and you would have likely been brought before the Sanhedrin. And so it was a matter of conscience for the Jewish people that God remained holy enthroned in the heavens and they had very strict and rigid guidelines whereby God could be known and understood. And it was a very Jewish understanding. Now bear in mind, the Jewish people, God's chosen people had been delivered the law. They had all of the feast days and holidays. And so they were very much in tune with a general sense of what the Lord would accept. But here's what happens when you allow religion to take over relationship. Because God had always intended a relationship, not simply a religious framework or structure. And so notice how this all goes down. With all the elders, the children of Israel, and sent them uh, to prison to have them brought. And so uh, now they're, they're, they're looking for the, these apostles, all of them, who were supposedly still in prison. Oops. But when the officers came and did not find him in prison, they, they returned and reported, saying, in, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely. That's kind of like, duh. And we went there, and the prison was a, a prison. And the guard standing outside the doors. Kind of what you'd hope to expect at a prison, right? You travel to any prison in the United States of America, and I can, you know, if you if you happen to be one of the the super secure prisons, the, the super max prisons, even when you get close to one of those prisons, there's huge signs that, on the side of the road, and they say, do not pick up anyone hitchhiking in this area. I don't know if you've ever seen those. And then you get closer and closer to the prison, and you see, you know, there's all kinds of different layers of fencing, and there's guards everywhere, and guard towers, and security gates, and, you know, there's biometric entry and all this. They didn't have all that stuff back then. But the prison was secure. And it was expected when someone was put in there, and they were put in there the night before, they would still be in there in the morning. Because they took all the proper precautions. And when they opened them, they found no one inside. And now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I find it interesting the way this is phrased by the Holy Spirit writing through Luke as he pens this chapter. Because there seems to be some sense that they understood that something other than a jailbreak was at foot here. That something had happened and they really didn't have an explanation for it exactly. They're wondering what the outcome would be. What's really happening here? You know, it's unlike the prison guards to just simply shirk their duties. It isn't like the facility is super easy to get out of. 
What's the outcome going to be? And so one came and told them, saying, Look, the, the men whom you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I'm pretty sure that's not what they were hoping to hear. That somehow maybe the door was left unlocked and, you know, they'd wandered away and, you know, maybe they got out, but they certainly wouldn't be bold enough to be going, doing exactly what they were put in prison for doing. You know, here's the thing. When you talk to most criminals and they've been incarcerated for a while, they may have a rather dim view of how maybe our justice system works and they maybe believe that they were incarcerated wrongly, but it is usually not the case that they will go and simply ignore what they were arrested for and go do it again in plain sight. That's not how the criminal mind works. And so they're not expecting to find these guys down at the temple doing exactly what they were told not to do. Maybe in the marketplace, buying some vegetables. Maybe they're on the road trying to escape, but they surely aren't going to be back at the temple preaching Christ Jesus crucified alone for the remission of sin. Hey, guess what? They're doing exactly that. The people you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. And so it's interesting to see exactly how much intensity the, the apostles were teaching with. They were so unafraid of the penalty of doing what they were doing. They were so emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this book is a book about the power of the Holy Spirit working in the first century church. They were so empowered by the Spirit, they didn't even think a second thought about it. Hey, we're supposed to be teaching in the temple. I don't care who says we're not supposed to. God told us to do it, so that's exactly what we're going to go do. But notice how they handle it. They didn't handle it with violence. They handled it with this is what we're supposed to do. If you want to arrest us, okay, go ahead and arrest us. But we're going to go back to prison. You're going to find us here tomorrow, too. You can almost imagine them saying that. For they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. You see, what was happening was people were getting saved. What was happening was blind people were now full-sighted. Lame people were walking. Those who were disabled were healed. People who were sick and dying were no longer sick and dying. They were fully well. And so as the apostles were doing these things, they were bearing testimony of the power of God. And so as they go back to the temple, everybody's like, yay, the apostles are back. Let's go back and let's bring all of our sick. Because remember where we left them, everyone they brought to the apostles was healed. So the people are like, we could use some more of this around here. It's interesting to me, and here's where this correlates into our world. It is interesting to me how many phone calls I get from governmental agencies to say, we hear you're doing homeless ministry. We hear you're, you're working downtown and, and trying to minister to the needs of people who are displaced. We hear that you as the church are feeding our officers. We hear that you are doing these things, and you know we kind of like that. Now, this whole Jesus thing, we kind of, we're not so big on that, but we like what you're doing. And so what we are doing is opening a door for the message that we really want to preach, which is Christ crucified for the remission of sin. 
And so very often we'll be engaged in something and people will actually like the fact that we're doing the things that the government ought to be doing, but the government either doesn't do well or they don't do it at all. And so as we do that as a church, we actually have a door very much like this one that is open to us to get to the hearts of men. And so that open door still continues to this day. And they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach, and I want you to see something, in this name? You see, he's so convinced that there's something to the name of Jesus that he does not want to blaspheme God by actually mentioning Jesus' name. So he says, in this name. And look, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The strange thing is, Jesus' blood was already upon him, because they were, in fact, the ones that had tried Jesus six times, by the way, illegally, between the trials with the religious rulers and Pilate and Herod. They had been a part of it the whole time. But they're trying to pretend it wasn't them. And so after Pentecost, this message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's spreading like wildfire throughout Jerusalem. And not everybody's happy about it. Not everybody's enjoying it. Not everybody wants to hear it because it begins to cut in on the religious establishment. You might call them the traditionalists from that standpoint. And again, this is not meant to be a disrespect to the Jewish faith of the Jewish people. It's simply to say they had part of the story right. God had been speaking to the Jewish people for close to 2,000 years at this point. And they understood who Messiah would be. They had been told by the prophet David. They had been told by the prophet Isaiah. They had been told by the prophet Daniel. They knew an awful lot of stuff about the Messiah. And then that stuff that they were told actually happened. And it happened exactly as the prophet said it would. David said the grave wouldn't hold him. David said that he would be hung on a tree. David said he would cry out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And he did it. So they had some of the puzzle pieces. And then when it happens, and then you have bearing testimony to the fact that that name has that kind of power because here's this blind guy that everybody knew he was blind because he sat at the city gate. And so when people walk by, they go, that's the guy who was blind. He's been there for years. That's the woman who was lame. That's the person who was sick. and That's actually a dead guy right there. I smelled Lazarus. He was dead. And they're all walking around. And they're starting to think back through some of those scriptures. And they're remembering Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52, 53. And they're beginning to think through what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 12 and going tying it back to chapter 2. And they're thinking, through, oh man, you know, we've we got to stop this message because this smells an awful lot like the Messiah. This is starting to look like this guy might be the real deal. And so it's cutting in to the religious establishment. 
And in some ways, it's actually cutting into their profit line. Because remember, by the time all of the taxes were accumulated, there was a lot of money that transpired at the temple. Because you had the standard temple tax, and then you had those who were of the Sadducees and of the Pharisees who controlled all the temple business, which is why Jesus went into the temple and turned over the table of the money changers. They were charging an exorbitant price. People were getting ripped off. They were getting gouged so that they could go then give that dove as an offering or or give that bundle of sticks as an offering or give that wave of grain as an offering. And so people start, they're, they're like, well, you know, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe this whole grace thing's working out for everybody. Jesus in John chapter 15 said this, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He'd go on in chapter 16 to say, they'll put you out of the synagogues, and yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. That time was now on them. That prophetic word of Jesus was actually being fulfilled right in their sight. The religious rulers of the Jewish people were believing that they were actually doing God's business, doing God's work. That this was heretical. What these guys were saying needed to be stopped. And it's an age-old conflict. And so as the church begins to be attacked, the cost of speaking the truth can be high at times because it will set you at conflict with the world. But it is an age-old conflict. It's a conflict between living truth and dead tradition. It has always been that way. We have it today in our world. It's amazing to me how many conflicts are stirred up even within Christendom where it's tradition versus being alive. We've always done it this way. It needs to look this way. We can't change the way we do these things. And God's saying, look, I want to create a new wineskin and put some new wine into that new wineskin. And so listen up. The council begins to attack the truth. Let's look at a few things. You see, there are three principal reasons that the apostles have been arrested. And, And this time, it wasn't just Peter, and it wasn't just John, it wasn't just a handful of them all of the apostles had gone to prison. So the whole group goes to jail, and the whole group is set free. The first thing that we see is Peter and John had had not obeyed those official orders to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. It's like, look, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember, Peter preaches these three sermons, and thousands of people get saved. But it's a very simple message. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, is alive. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And that message they're still preaching. The second reason was the church was refuting the doctrines that were held by the Sadducees. In other words, they're saying, look, you can be saved by grace and through faith. And all of this religion, you can't be saved by it. You can only be saved by confessing your sin and asking God for faith. And that faith translating into the grace of God will now put you in the right standing with God. 
It's no longer about the temple. It's no longer about the sacrifices. It's no longer about the building. It's actually about a relationship. They didn't want anything to do with that. Now remember, at this time, Herod's temple is still on the Temple Mount. So as these things are being preached, there is a massive, beautiful, ornate, gorgeous, huge temple on the Temple Mount that much of which was gilded with gold on the outside, so much so that you could see it from any high point in all of Jerusalem. And they're going, that's our church. And you know what? This is a big building, and it takes a lot of money to keep this thing going. So we don't want you cutting in on our profit margin here. If you tell people they can have a right relationship with God, and they don't need to come to the temple and buy sacrifices from us, and they don't need to pay that temple tax... How are we going to take care of this? you know how many Levites there are? Do you know the type of retirement plan we have to fund for those guys down in Jericho? The apostles weren't worried about any of it. They were worried about simply preaching the truth that Jesus Christ, who's God's only son, died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised three days later, and he is now alive, and he was seen by thousands of people total. And they're preaching that message, and people are giving their life to God without all the religious trappings. Now, having said all of that, church has an important function. All churches do that teach the Bible. There are things that the church does that individuals generally will not do on their own. So I'm not dismissing church in general. But no one is saved because they go to church. People are saved because they have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've accepted that faith gift of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That faith is a gift. You can't boast about it. None of us can brag about the fact that God gave us a gift of faith so that we can believe. So it's of him and not of us. You see, that's a vertical relationship that you can have Without church, did you realize that? Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't belong to a local body because the local body has a wonderful part in your growth and being, you know, us being something better together than we are as individuals. So don't discount that. But when people talk about, hey, you know, I, how do you know you're a Christian? They say, well, I go to this church. That's not how you know you're a Christian. And the same was true for the Jewish people. Yes, they went to church. In that sense, they went to temple. When they opened up that beautiful multicolored gate on the front of the temple, this incredible, beautiful picture unfolded before them. And you'd look, and there was the altar of sacrifice and the bronze laver. They would go in and they would offer up their sacrifice, and it would be consumed and it'd rise up to God as a sweet incense. And the high priest would slaughter the lamb, signifying the innocent atonement that was made for their sins. And they'd go over and they'd dip their hand in this beautiful bronze basin that was filled with water with a mirror-like sheen. And they'd rinse their hands and then raise their hands up to God, and the water would drip off of their elbows. They wouldn't touch their own hands so that they wouldn't become unclean. And then they would make a sacrifice for themselves and enter into the holy place, the front side of the temple. And then there's they came in the table of showbread with 12 loaves on it, representing all of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they're in front of this giant veil, some six inches thick, over 30 feet tall, that separated man from God. 
Because inside of that was the Holy of Holies. The place where once a year the high priest could enter in after having offered up a sacrifice for himself first and then tying a scarlet cord around his ankle. And he would take the blood and he would put it on the altar there between the two cherubim as they faced each other, signifying the holiness of God. And just in case he took any sin in with him, that cord was there. If he died, the other priest could pull him out from behind the the veil. And there in front of that would be an altar of incense, constantly burning, those prayers going up to God. And there to the left, a giant menorah, the lampstand of the Lord. This was a big deal. And every bit of it signified the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think Jesus said, I am, let's go back through it, a living sacrifice? I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am an intercessor before God. I am the light of the world. I did tear the veil. I am the sacrifice, the lamb slain. All of it was talking about Jesus. And now you can know that God without all of that stuff. You could know God by simply knowing Christ. And so these guys... Like, man, what are we going to do? They were filled with envy. They were filled with indignation. They were jealous, if you want to look at it that way. It's an incredible picture. The other thing was driving them absolutely mad was remember what was said about the apostles? We perceive that these are unlearned men. Are not all of these who speak Galileans? There was an accent to the region of Galilee. It was kind of like the Hicks from the Sticks things. They spoke with a little bit of an accent, kind of showing that they were a little ignorant. And now these ignorant, unlearned men had the words of life. And they were preaching a simple message that man could be right with God by knowing his son Jesus. All the religious people are going, man, this, this just can't be. I mean, all the time that we've spent studying the Torah. Again, that's a good endeavor, by the way. To know the Word of God is essential. But that's why Jesus pointed out to him, look, you search the Scriptures for you think that in these you have life. And they bear witness of me. You can come to faith in Christ by simply hearing the good news of the Gospel. And believing. The instruction comes after that. They had it backwards. They thought you needed all this instruction and all the trappings and all the church and all the sacrifices and all the sacraments and you had to do everything just perfectly and then maybe God would accept you. When God said, I'll take you just the way you are and then I'll transform you. You see, it reversed all that they knew about God. And so to them, 
the truth of how they had lived their lives was being attacked right before their eyes. And it's interesting to me because when I look at this, God's so good, he, he actually really is kind of using a bit of irony here in the fact that he, he lets these guys out. It's exactly as Psalm 94 suggests to us. My God is my rock and my refuge. He's brought them out of their own, he cut them off from their own wickedness. The Lord God shall uh, indeed put them all down. He, he didn't need all of this other stuff. The Lord himself could do those things. And so the Lord releases these guys. And the next thing that we see is this, the apostles are now going to just simply affirm this truth. Notice verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They're at it again. It's like, didn't we just arrest you for this? Uh-huh. Yeah, and we're going to keep telling you the same thing. Until you either put us in prison and keep us there, or God doesn't get us out, or whatever. And then we're just going to, we're going to witness to the guards, and they're going to get saved. They'll probably let us out anyway. So you're just, you're not, you kind of need to give up. God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Can you imagine you, you talk about defending and affirming the central truth of the gospel message. This is it. Jesus Christ, God's own son, died on Calvary's cross that we might be able to have a right relationship with God. That's the message. They're like, well, we're just going to keep teaching that. And him God has exalted to his right hand to be both prince and savior, to give a repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. You see, they believed that forgiveness of sins came through the work of the temple. And Jesus said, I am the temple. And they had a tough time understanding. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. The apostles didn't change their conviction. The family of God. It is so important that we as a church do not change our convictions. We have to stay on message with the world. We've got to stop getting sidetracked by all the church stuff. It is the gospel that can save And we need to stick to that message. When the church gets sidetracked, and again, social things are great. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't try and do social things. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't try and do community projects and all those kinds of things. We actually do a lot of those kind of things, and we should. But we have to remember that those are only a means to preach the gospel. Because if all we're doing is just doing good works, good works can save no one. They need to be a way for us to open the door for the gospel. And these guys are, look, you know, we got out of prison, we went down and went right back to doing exactly what we were doing before, which is pre- preaching Jesus Christ. So that's what we're about. When people ask you what you're about as a Christian, you're about preaching Jesus Christ. That's what you're about. Because that's how people become believers And from believers, they become disciples. And disciples then are supposed to go and make other disciples of all men. We're supposed to go into all nations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We're supposed to go into all of the world, make disciples of all men. The first step of which is leading people to Jesus. And so it's a simple thing. It's not complex. 
I had a guy two weeks ago that came to the church and, you know, had read this article that was in Outreach Magazine about how we're one of the 50 largest churches in America. And, and he, you know, kind of wanted to, you know, see what the secret was. And I made him really upset. I said, well, there's really not a secret to it. We just preach the gospel. We preach the Bible from cover to cover. And we tell people about Jesus. And he says, well, you know, what's your five-year plan? I said, we don't have one. It's to preach the gospel. He said, well, well, you know, what's your budget look like? And I said, well, we have one of those. But when God speaks, we change the budget if it doesn't match up with what the budget says. He's like, really? And he says, well, what am I supposed to write? And I said, you write whatever you want. I'm just telling you the truth. We're just here to preach the gospel. And he says, well, I don't think there's any reason for me to come out from Baltimore and interview. I said, you're probably right. There isn't. It's not that complex. It's about Jesus. At the end of the day, it's about Jesus, folks. Tell them about Jesus. Jesus is right now sitting at God's right hand. It's a, it's a key theme in all of Scripture. The 110th Psalm reminds us, the, the Lord said to my Lord, remember God speaking to God, so to speak. Jesus speaking to God the Father, sit at my right hand. Or God the Father speaking to Jesus, right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, this has been the message all along. That God incarnate in human flesh would one day come to this earth and die on that cross so that we could be set free. Don't get off message. Ephesians 1.20, For he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and powers, might and dominion at every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The whole Bible is about Jesus. You know, sometimes when you say that to people, they, they kind of look at you a little bit of a weird look. It's like the whole Bible's about Jesus? Yep, the whole Bible's about Jesus. All the way back to the book of Genesis. The whole Bible's, yes, the whole Bible's about Jesus. I may not have his name there in Genesis chapter 3, but it says that one day the seed of the woman, it begins there. Who was the sacrifice in the garden that was made for Adam and Eve? It begins there. The whole Bible's about Jesus. The apostles had that message. They affirmed that truth. They, they never wavered in what they were teaching and what they were preaching. And, and when Jesus here is called the prince, it, it, it means, it's an interesting word actually in the original language, in the, in the Greek, the Aramaic word for it as well. It means a pioneer, one who leads the way. It, it's kind of like the person who would be a, a scout or be out ahead of the party. It means that you're the first one to get there. So Jesus, in that sense, was the one who pioneered our faith in that he went before us. He was the firstborn of the dead. He died and was raised again. You see, Jesus did what no one had ever done. And that's why we can now walk, as Romans 6 will tell us when we get there, in that newness of life. Because there's a new life to live in. Before, there was only one kind of life. Before Jesus gave us eternal life, you had exactly one kind of life. And that was temporal. It ended, and you spent 
at that point in time, the rest of eternity in Sheol, either waiting unrighteously or righteously. But now there's eternal life. Man and God have been reconciled. And so the apostles were preaching that. And the great thing about our life that we now live is some, some Christians actually look at life almost like our parking lot out there. Parking lot, you know, looks great. It's a place to park cars. But there's not a whole lot of action that happens out there, right? We need to remember that life isn't just a parking lot. It ought to be kind of a launching pad. It's like when you pull out of your parking spot, you ought to be thinking about, man, I'm heading into the mission field. I'm going someplace where the Lord can use me. We, we, don't, we don't want to just go from there to another parking lot someplace. We want to go from there to someplace where God's going to use us. And that was the way the apostles looked at these things. And so he says, look, this, this man that you crucified is also the Savior. And again, to understand the original language there, Savior was a very common term. And when they use Savior, they use it in the context of physicians. They use it in the context of philosophers, someone who could rightly think through things and give you the proper logical conclusion to why you would think through a certain set of, set of thoughts or values or ideas. And was also used for statesmen or politicians, someone who had you know the government at their back kind of backing up the things that they were saying. So when they said Savior, they understood exactly what Savior meant. That went someone who could save your life physically, someone who could save your life mentally, and someone who could save your life emotionally. Savior. Really Savior. And so they were, they were on message with who Jesus was. Sometimes we kind of sell Jesus short. I don't really strongly encourage you, don't sell Jesus short. He is the Savior of the world. He's not just another religious figure. He's not just the guy that we worship here. He's the only one worthy of worship in the entire universe. He's God. He's not kind of like God. He's not the God ideal like a Christian scientist would tell you. He is God incarnate. Fully God. And when he came to this fully man, and when you see him in heaven, he's still going to bear the same scars as when he was crucified on Calvary's cross. But he is God. Don't sell Jesus short. Affirm the truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Next we see this famous rabbi, Gamaliel, uh, kind of avoiding the truth in all this. Verse 33, and when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. This is the same message. Look, we told you not to do this, and you're doing this. We're going to kill you. This is boldness. This is the type of boldness that we need in our world today, I believe. And then one in the council stood up a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who held respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a while. And then he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you that you intend to do regarding these men. In other words, watch what it is that you're going to do to them. Be really careful. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain. 
And all who obeyed him were scattered among them and came to nothing. In other words, what he's saying is, look, this guy's, these people, these men that you just arrested are a flash in a pan. They, they are going to be here today. They're going to be gone tomorrow. You don't need to worry about these guys. They've got this lame story about this Galilean dude who got arrested in Jerusalem. He was put to death, supposedly resurrected, but don't worry about it. We've seen stuff like this before. They'll just go away. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting Jesus in the same category as a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of insurrectionists, basically. And he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the work of men, it will come to nothing. Which is exactly what he's banking on. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So he's leaving the door open. This guy is a politician's politician right here. This is a bright guy. He has not painted himself into a corner. He's given two examples of people who, you know, raised up, got a little bit of a following, and then disappeared. And then he's leaving the door open just in case anything happens. His back door is, well, if it was really God... And so be it. And so now you have a Pharisee come on the scene. So you have the two sects in the same place, same time, kind of duking it out, if you will, going back and forth. You have the Sadducees, who are the Libertines, who do not believe in the resurrection to begin with, who do not believe in angels. You have Gamaliel, who believe that there is a resurrection, and Gamaliel also believes that there are angels, and they're kind of going back and forth doctrinally, theologically, if you will. And so respected was Gamaliel that when Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, the Jews said that the glory of the law ceased and the purity and the abstinence of the Jewish people died. That's how important he was. This is the guy that instructed the Apostle Paul. So this is a big dude. This is a guy who, as far as Judaism is concerned, he's like the cream of the crop. And he's now standing up saying, look, Listen to my counsel. And this is normally the way it goes. You usually have somebody with, with a very large degree of knowledge that will come on the scene and, and try and bring people together. And again, not saying that that's improper necessarily. But what's going on here is they're, they're now trying to work out a way to where they can come to some sort of consensus that we'll just let these guys go. Because they're going to change their story. It's going to come to nothing. You give them enough time, they're going to disband, and we'll never hear about Jesus of Nazareth again. Boy, were they wrong. Amen? (laughs) Totally wrong. Because here the, the brightest and the best have now come up with a couple of different theories. We're going to kill you. And we're going to let you go because you're wrong. And just in case you're not wrong, we're going to leave the door open that we could say that, you know, God somehow in a weird way used you. 
This is what people do. They try and explain away the miraculous, how God uses simple people to accomplish his great purposes, and that's why I got that phone call from that guy on the East Coast. They, they want to figure out what it is that's going on. They want to know why God is, you know, might be blessing. And they're looking for some secret to minute. Somebody can print a book on it or something. Figure out some way to monetize it, if you will. Gamaliel has some mistaken ideas, and, and one of them is this. If something is not of God, it will fail. Well, that's absolutely not true. There's all kinds of things that are not of God that you could look at from a worldly perspective that absolutely don't fail. There are billions of dollars made in all kinds of different industries that are absolutely not of God that you can't say, well, that failed. So physical things aren't necessarily an indicator that God is in them or not in them. God allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. He is good to people who are bad to him, and he is bad to people who are good to him at times, if you want to look at it that way. God himself is always good. He allows bad things to happen to good people. Amen? Anybody in here ever suffered and you're a believer? I have. So he's allowed bad things to happen to people who, at least in Christ's sense, are good. So Gamaliel has this kind of logical mindset. And we need to be careful about overthinking the gospel message. Sometimes we just need to tell it like it is. I want to tell you, there's an awful lot of Christians who get themselves into hot water this way, and you can see them. They protest everything. They try and figure out how to get God, you know, involved in every little decision. You know, sometimes life is just life, folks, and you don't have to be going around looking for demon, demon, who's got the demon. You don't have to try and figure out every little thing that might have a speck of the world in it. I'll give you a little secret. The only way to escape all of that is to not be here. So if you're one of those people that thinks Mickey Mouse is of the devil, and if you go to Disneyland, you're going to hell, um, you could say the same thing about being an American, right? Doesn't our government do some things with our money that we would prefer that they don't as Christians? You, you can't escape it while you're here. It's an impossibility. It is a physical impossibility. So don't get caught trying to be against everything. Because if you do, you're going to be against everything, and you're going to be for nothing, including winning people to Christ. Because they're going to look at you and think that the only thing you care about is something that can't ever happen while we're here, because you're not going to reach a state of perfection here. You're going to reach a state of perfection there. So be careful, because that was Gamaliel's trap. He thought if it was perfect, then it was obviously of God, and if it was imperfect, it was not of God. Most everything in this life is going to be imperfect, including you and me. Don't make that mistake. Because when you hold up a perfect righteousness and you try and say, well, this person is perfectly righteous, you're going to find out that person is not perfectly righteous. And then people get turned away from the Lord because that person is not perfectly righteous. We need to leave Christ as righteous, and we do our best to try and be like him. But we are going to have our weaknesses and faults and failures. Finishing this up, the church now announces the truth. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for all the apostles and beaten them, so now they're not going to throw them in jail, they're not going to kill them, well, there's no point in killing them, we'll just beat them. 
And they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing, and they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's our calling as a church. That's what we do. We want to get away from the rhetoric. We want to get away from the religion. We want to have the right relationship and just simply tell people about Jesus. We do that. The Lord is for us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? And so the question really becomes, like, I'm going to bring the worship team back up, but it becomes really what kind of witness do we have? And you notice these guys witness daily. They, they went right back to, I don't know how long it took them to get beaten and then go back to preaching Jesus, but it appears it was pretty much instantaneous. They beat him, let him go, and they started preaching Jesus. That's pretty much how life's going to go for us, folks. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but keep preaching Jesus. Keep telling people about Christ. Keep evangelizing the lost. If we sincerely look for opportunities, we expect God to give them to us, we're never going to lack for open doors. You're never going to lack for open doors. The neat story is a small dog been struck by a car. It was lying on the side of the road near death. A doctor, a medical doctor, a human doctor driving by, noticed the dog was still alive, stopped his car, picked the dog up, took him home, discovered the dog had actually just been stunned, suffered a few minor cuts and abrasions, but is otherwise pretty well off. He revived the dog, cleaned the wounds, carried the animal from the house to the garage, and suddenly it jumped in his arms and jumped from its arms and scampered off. And he thought to himself, what an ungrateful little dog. And thought about it no more till the next evening when he heard some scratching at the door and he opened it. And there was a little dog that he had treated with another little hurt dog. God knows exactly who to have us go get and who to bring them to so that they can meet the one that can heal them. Don't miss that opportunity in your life. Each one of you has a unique way to be able to do that. And God's waiting for us because we've all been touched by the Master. Amen? We've all, we, each one of us has wounds and things that the Lord's done in our life that are unique to us. And, and sometimes we kind of make it seem like we're ungrateful to God, but our goal is to scamper off and go find somebody who is also wounded and bring them back to the Master so they can be healed. That's what the apostles did. They were ashamed of nothing. They were afraid of nothing. They stayed on message. And through them, that's how we all got here. So thank the Lord for it. Let's praise him for it. And let's get busy about our Father's business. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for the beautiful work of your Spirit in the church. God, that you would gather us together as a diverse group of people who have been wounded by this world and hurt and beat up and run over and 
Lord, we were on the side of the road and left for dead, many of us, but you found us and you bandaged us up and you healed us. And Lord, we want to be like that little dog that jumps out of the arms of the master and runs to try and find someone else who's injured and bring them to you, the great physician. And so we invite you to send us out on that journey. Lord, as you, Jesus, commanded the disciples as you were leaving this earth, you said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things, Lord, pertaining to life and godliness. And Father, we thank you that we get to join in that task while we're still here. We pray that you'd make us effective. And Lord, help our lives not to be a Uh, a faithless omission of that truth, but a fulfillment of the great commission. Lord, to go and to be busy. And so bless us, and as we close tonight, God, as we worship you, uh, we pray that you'd move in this place. Lord, touch us. Use us for your glory. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and God's people, Son. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.